and where God gives the regulations for consecrating Aaron and his sons and the priestly garments and, and all kinds of things. It's a shift in the direction. It's all connected to the tabernacle and God's promise to come and meet and dwell with his people as the priests would be these intercessors for, 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 for God's people. And um, as I was reading through that and studying through that, God put something on my heart just as a message, I think, for you guys from him um, uh, for the time that I'm going to be gone. And um, so we're not going to be in, in, in um, Exodus 27 this morning. Rather, that we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a portion there, and then on into chapter 4. And, and with all the things that are going on in my life, this is, this is not a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing that I've thought about or struggled with. These, this topic this morning is something that is really applicable to many areas of life. But when you come to crossroads in your life, I think when we come to crossroads in our lives in regards to our position in life or our portion in life, um, you're going to hear me use those two phrases a lot, those two words a lot, but there's a lot of things that can be categorized under your position and your portion uh, in life. But when, when, when those two things come at a crossroads, or one of those things come at a crossroads because of events or circumstances or situations, I think we can be con- challenged with contentment. With contentment. And, and so as God's been speaking to me and, and sharing some things with me, I just really wanted to, to, to do a topical study this morning on contentment, but really to contrast it with this idea of um, apathy. And, and here's part of the reason why, because I think that the church today as a whole in America has grown very apathetic. We've grown apathetic in, in our call, in our mission, in the things that, that, that we've been left here by the Lord to do in regards to our, even our own holiness and our own obedience to God's Word. And, and um, I think that a lot of times that happens either individually or corporately in our own lives where we we, 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 we can transition into these places of apathy and, and do so under this banner, if you will, of going, well, I'm just seeking contentment. And, and, and those two items, those two things, those two attributes that, that we're looking for or, or states of being that we can maybe be striving for can be confused in our hearts and minds. And so I really challenge you, as God's challenged me, just to, to, to hear these words, to listen to them this morning, and, and have God search you and search me and go, okay, Lord, have I slipped into areas of apathy in my own life and mistaken it for contentment? Because here's one thing. Contentment is godly. Apathy is not. It's not. So let's start off by going to uh, Ex- or, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and this may seem a little strange considering the things that I've led into, but um, hopefully we'll be able to connect the dots for you. So I'm going to read Exodus chapter 3, or excuse me, I've got Exodus in here. It's been a few weeks we've been there. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go on. So it says in verse 1, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, 
a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Verse 9. And so Solomon with this, this um, acknowledgement of, I think, an absolute truth, he goes on and says, So what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. And Lord, I pray that we would see and understand that this morning. Not only would we see that there's a time for everything, but it's a a time that You've ordained for us. And that You're a good God, a good Father who gives good gifts. It's a gift from You. And I I know, Lord, that it, it doesn't always feel that way at times to us when we look at our position or we look at our portion that season that you provided or that that time that you've 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 moved us into and 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 when it's not god truly god when it's not what we think is best lord we don't count it as good we lose our contentment and so father i pray lord that you would speak to us this morning through your word by the power of your holy spirit god that we would understand your truth and know it not only in our, in our head, but in our heart, Lord, so that we may live by it. That we may be molded by it. God, we want to be that clay in Your hands that is soft and malleable. And so, Lord, we trust You. We put our faith in You again this morning. And we say, have Your will with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one other passage of Scripture that I want to read this morning that kind of connects... I think where we're going with this overall thought of contentment and apathy is, is in Philippians. Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. It's, it's referred to often as the epistle of joy, the letter of joy. And, and Paul speaks over and over and over again in that letter about having joy. And, and the amazing thing to me about that letter is it's one of the letters that Paul wrote when he was imprisoned in a Roman prison. And, and one of the things that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, he said this. And he, he's writing to the Philippians, and he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. So we see that Paul's writing a letter to them, a thank you note. Well, it's more than just a thank you note, it's, it's, it's doctrine, it's encouragement to them. But in this part of it, at the close of the letter, um, we see that he had written this letter 
as, as, as a response to a, a, a blessing that they had sent to him, a provision that they had, had, had provided and, and sent to him. And he said, he's saying, he's recognizing, he's thanking the Lord greatly that, that their care for him has flourished again. He says, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not, he says, that I speak in regard to need. And, and guys, in this moment, Paul had need. He did. He was locked up in a Roman prison, and the way that it worked back in that day is if someone didn't provide for you while you were in prison, you had nothing. And so Paul, being in prison, had need, and the Philippians had come to meet his need, but he's thanking them, and he's going through this, and he said, really, not that I'm just appealing to you and speaking to you because I was in need, because he says this. He says, that's not my motive. He said, for whatever, for I have learned that in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere, he says, and in all things, I have learned to be both full and hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he, he, he concludes with this side. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I wanted to begin by reading this passage of Scripture this morning because in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes a claim. He claims to have reached a state of being, I think, that not many of us can honestly say that we have obtained in our life. Who here, maybe I shouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but I doubt that many of us would raise our hand and say, yes, I have achieved the state of perfect contentment that no matter what happens, no matter what I have, complete joy and peace has overtaken me. We might go, liar! <laughs> but yet Paul makes that claim. He makes that statement. And I, I believe there's truth in this because of his conclusion. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I believe that's the key for all of us in regards to achieving this place of contentment in our own life. And, and it, was, it wasn't that, uh, excuse me, and, and it was that Paul, he had, he had learned to be content in whatever state he was in. He says whether he had a little or, or whether he had a lot. And even though it's safe to say, that contentment is a lesson that we are all learning. I think it is that we are learning this thing, contentment. I think it's also safe to say that being content with whatever God has, 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 wherever God has us at, your position, wherever God has you at, and being content with whatever God provides, I think it's a lesson that we all desire to learn. I desire, I desire to learn that lesson. And, and I can be completely honest with you, there are times where I do have contentment that's not, that's not circumstantial. But it's usually a process where I move from, from the discontentment into the state of being content as I apply these truths that we're going to talk about this morning. And, and I think we desire to learn that lesson where we could come to Paul and, and maybe write to somebody and say, listen, I'm grateful that you gave it to me, but I really didn't have any need because even when I've had nothing, I've still had everything. And, 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 and I've been content. No, no matter what I'm going through, 
I've not sought to be delivered. I've just sought to be with Jesus and still have that, that peace and that joy that surpasses the understanding that Paul even writes about a little earlier in this chapter that can come only through Christ as well. And I think we all desire to learn that lesson of contentment because we've all experienced these moments or those moments of contentment when, when really when our circumstances are all that we have wished for them to be. Usually for me, it's like after Thanksgiving dinner. It's my favorite holiday. And the family's around, and we've just had a big meal, and, and I, I sit back, I'm, oh, I ate too much, right? But it, 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 that's just an example. It's, it's, things are the way that we wish to them be. And in those fleeting moments of contentment, because they are fleeting moments of contentment, we in those times have experienced a joy and a peace that has driven out these things. It's driven out the worries. It's driven out every one of our fears. And more importantly, it drives away those feelings and thoughts of envy and jealousy so far from our hearts and our minds that in that moment we go, this is a little bit of like heaven on earth. And so because of those times when we feel those things, when we experience those things, I think we come to passages like what Paul writes here and we go, yes, I want that, God. I want that. I want my life to be defined by that. Now, when I think about the word contentment, other words like happiness, pleasure, and complete satisfaction are what come to mind. And as you know, when these moments of contentment are experienced, they can quickly fade away because you've got to do the Thanksgiving Day dishes. And there's a lot of them, right? They're waiting for you. Or other circumstances and other situations because they change. They provide the, 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 those things that provided the environment for our thoughts and feelings. They also go away. Nevertheless... Because of those times that when we experience those moments of contentment, I think that we would all agree with this passage of Scripture where Paul also wrote to Timothy, and he said this in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6, he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And there is a great gain in being content. But when we read on, that's verse 6, when we read on into verses 7 and 8, Timothy also says this, or Paul also says to Timothy, he says, he says again in verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now, I don't know about you, but at that point, I put on the brakes. I have to pause and rethink what he's saying and go, really? I don't know about you, but when I read the rest of these verses, I run into this problem because really with that statement, I see within myself just how far from that mark of godliness that's spoken about in verse 6 that I truly am away from. And not only that, not a mark away from the mark of godliness, but truly away from the mark or the place of godly contentment. And I wonder... In that, when I read that passage in what Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in regards to contentment, I wonder if I could ever be content with just having food and clothing. And experiencing contentment with these simple things that God says we should be content with. Especially in light of the fact that, that there are things that we all want, right? 
things that we all want to do, right? And things that we all want to change. Which, by the way, are often perceived, at least by me and maybe by you as well, as not just wants but needs. Things that I need. Things that I need to change. Things that I need to do. I want to be sure and point out that Paul, guys, he's not suggesting that we live this aesthetic lifestyle and become this new movement of being a minimalist where you live in a small house and you only have one fork. And that's, that's not what Paul's point is. You know, when you get done with the fork, can I borrow it? That, that's not what he's suggesting here in regards to um, all that we, we should seek to have is just food and clothing. That's it. Rather, guys, what he's pointing out is he's pointing out this truth, okay? This is where we're going to go from. He's pointing out this truth, that contentment is rooted in accepting whatever God provides. Contentment is found in accepting, or it's rooted in accepting whatever God provides in the the accepting of whatever God allows. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is all about. And I would like for us to hold on to that thought while we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 because in this chapter, Solomon reflected on the fact that there is a God-appointed time, right? A God-appointed time and season for everything. And then he sums it all up, look in verse 11, by saying this. I love this verse. I love it. And guys, whatever, whatever's going on in your life right now, Whatever you have or don't have or aren't at, this is a truth. God has made it beautiful. God has made it beautiful in its time. And as Solomon went on, he considered death in regards to the destiny of the soul of a man. And he concluded his thought. We didn't read this, but if you look over to verse 22, and he said this. He said, so I perceive that is nothing better. I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. And when you, when you translate that from the Greek, that word that translate is this. Let me read it in a different, a different translation. So I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own work, for that is his portion. Not just his heritage, but his portion. And when you think about that, that's the part that's been allotted to me. And it says this, For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? in regards to eternity and this life that we're now living. And so Solomon had put forth the same thought back in chapter 2. I'm giving you some context now for where we're at in chapter 3. In verse 24, when he said this, he said, he said listen, nothing is better for a man that, that he should eat and drink, and that his, that his soul should enjoy good labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. And then he would repeat this same idea a little further on in, in, in chapter 5, verse 18, when he says this. He says, here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all of the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his portion. And each time that statement's made, when you study through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is really referring in each one of those instances to a completely different set of portions and provisions. And he's going, 
Even here it's good. Even here it's good. Even here it's good. Rejoice and celebrate for that portion, for that position that you're in. In light of this, we see that Solomon was pointing out really the importance of us accepting our position, our portion in this life, so that we will be able to enjoy the blessing that God has given us. And you know when you're not doing that, what happens is you miss out, right? That's the, that's the devil behind lack of contentment, is, is that the good thing that's right before you, the season that you're in that is from a good God as a good gift, you don't see it as that, and you miss out. We miss out on the blessing that God's provided. Furthermore, Solomon was preaching contentment as a reason, guys, to believe that this, worth is life, this, this life is worth living. Ultimately, that's what he's talking about. He's preaching contentment. He's preaching contentment as a reason to believe that this life is worth living. Saying that it's good and fitting for us to labor faithfully, enjoy the good things of this life, and to accept it all as the gracious gift of a good God. In other words, contentment, which is enjoying this life, enjoying this life no matter what position you find yourself in, and and no matter what your portion you have been given, comes from knowing this, God's ordained it. God's ordained it for you. For you, for me, individually, personally, specifically. That God's ordained it and that He's provided for it. And this understanding is ultimately what enables us to say like Paul, I have learned that in whatever state I am in, to be content. Furthermore, this is why Solomon stated in chapter 3 and said in verse 1, look back here, he said, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. See how it all connects back? And knowing this truth can be a comforting thing that enables us to experience, I would say, true biblical contentment, which is a state of mind. More than a state of mind, it's a state of being. A state of being that comes from knowing that God is is good and that He is in control and that in Him and through Him, here's, here's what it really means, is that in Him and through Him, I have no unmet need for the time and season that He now has me in. And that's why Paul would say, even while I'm in prison, I'm thanking you. But you know, I don't, have no, I don't have no need. It's not unmet. However, guys, here's, here's the thing. In order to do what we've been looking at here, there's a key. We must live by faith. We've got to live by faith. And trust in God, considering the portion, the time or the season that we're in, Uh, or excuse me, considering the position, the time and season that we're in, and the portion that we've been given is also always in a state of change, right? It's always in a state of change. The position and the portion. It's not going to look the same next year, next month, next week. And so when Paul was writing to the Philippians and told them of his appreciation for their gift, he made it clear that he was, that, it, that, that with or without it, this is why he said he had no need, because with or without the gift, he was content. I'm content. 
Now, listen, follow this. I don't want to make it confusing, but this is important. The Greek word that Paul used for that word content in the first part of, of those verses, verse 6 in 1 Timothy, is the word atarkes. Atarkes, which literally means this, strong enough to need no aid or support. Content. Strong enough to need no aid or support. And when Paul said in this said this in the context that he learned to be content, learned to be strong enough to need no aid or support. He qualified this then by saying in verse 13, now it makes more sense, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm strong enough to need no aid or support. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In contrast, the word found in 1 Timothy verse 8 where we're told that godliness with contentment is great gain, and that we're to be content with food and clothing, it's a different Greek word. It's similar, but it's slightly different. In the original Greek, it gives us a, a, a deeper understanding of the word. It's the word atarkaya. And that word there in that context, it literally means a perfect condition in life. A perfect condition in life which no aid or support is needed. And what does God say that, that state or, or, or position is? If you have food and clothing. Food and clothing. And so really what it does is it takes away an excuse that we often come up with. What excuse? Pretty much any excuse for us in America. I have clothing. And you're all going, thank, thank you God that he has clothing. But I have a whole closet full of clothes. I have food. I ate this morning. Thanks for the bagel this morning, guys. But I have a whole. I have two freezers full of food, and some still in my fridge. Not much because we're trying to leave and not let it all rot while we're gone, right? But even even if I I don't have it there, I have money in my pocket, and I can go down to the grocery store or to the pizza place and get whatever I want. That's not true everywhere in the world. It's not, but here it is, and that's true for us. And so we're looking at this, and so again, it, it means a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. And what's the qualification for that? Food and clothes. And it's not a closet full of clothes and not freezers full of food. And, 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 and even if you didn't have any right now, God makes a promise to us, right? He says, you know what? Why do you worry about these things? Food and clothes, what you eat, what you're going to wear. He says, look at the birds of the air and the fields, of the flowers in the field. He says, God cares for these things and they don't go without. How much more will He care for you? The point is, our position or portion, guys, here's, here's, the, here's the, the, what, it, what we conclude from those two words. This is what it comes down to. It is, the, is that our position or portion will never create the perfect condition in life in which no aid or support is needed. And that's often why our contentment, which can lead to apathy, is so quick to go away because we look for the opposite of that, right? We look for our strength in which we know, need no aid or support to be based upon what we have or where we're at rather than in who God is and what He's promised to us. 
So our position or portion will never create a perfect condition of this life in which no aid or support is needed. Nevertheless, contentment which allows us to enjoy the provisions and blessing of God, which Solomon said is a good and fitting thing for us to do, that's the other thing. God wants us to be happy in as far as He's concerned about our holiness. He truly is. But He, he wants us to enjoy the things that He's provided for us, guys. He does. And so, and so when Solomon said it's a good and fitting thing for us to do, we understand that, this is a, that, 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 that contentment is an, is an obtainable state of mind when we like Paul, know that we also can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Now, I've heard it said that contentment for a believer, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I've heard it said that, or suggested that contentment for a believer is following Jesus with nothing much in mind except to see what's going to happen next. Wouldn't you love to just live like that? I mean, seriously. I, I, I would love to be able to reach that place in my life where I'm just like following Jesus. Okay, what's next? Just trusting and realizing and believing deep in my heart that whatever happens, whatever I receive, it's going to be awesome and great. It would be like Christmas every morning, guys, if we could live like that. Or as my wife might say, it'd be like going to Disneyland every day. You know? At every turn. Something new, something exciting. Following Jesus. Excited what's going to happen next. And I really think that this great statement, and I think that's something to, to shoot for. However, when we consider godly contentment, we need to see that there's this cheap imitation. I've already spoken about it. There's this cheap imitation called apathy. It's a satanic imitation that we might be tempted to settle for and really confuse in our hearts and minds as this this place or state of being that we're looking at called contentment. And contentment is primarily different than apathy because true contentment is about gratitude. Right? True contentment is about gratitude. It's about recognizing whenever, <coughs> recognizing that whatever we have today is a gift that has come from God or wherever you are going, whatever you are going through today is, is what our God who is good has allowed and the fact of the matter is that it is impossible to be both apathetic and grateful. It's impossible. Furthermore, contentment, like, unlike apathy, is also about hope. Contentment is about hope. That's the faith aspect of it, right? Faith, hope, and love, knowing that God loves us, hoping for God's best for our lives and for others, while apathy kind of leads us to this, this drifting along kind of mentality. And, and, and I think we can fall prey to that as Christians because we don't necessarily always live with anticipation and excitement for the Lord's return going, yes, he's coming back for me soon. Sometimes it's like, and, and this is real, I get it. Sometimes like, it's like, I can't stand it here another moment. Man, if Jesus would just come back. And, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a state of heart that comes out of a state of being. Are we content or have we gotten just apathetic? to the fact that we have abundant life now and the, the life that we have, the position and that we portion that we have now, no matter what it is, the time or the season is an awesome thing given to us from God. A gift. A gift. And, and so apathy, again, is this drifting along kind of feeling 
uh, of life, it brings forth emptiness and meaningless, considering that a life of apathy is really a life void of passion. It's that Eeyore kind of mentality. Well, I guess. It's a life void of challenge. Taking those steps of faith. And it's a life, really, guys, void of sense and purpose. And the more I think about apathy as I studied this and contemplated it in regards or in contrast to contentment, I've concluded that apathy could actually be a root cause for many other sins in our lives. For example, apathy robs us from being, the, being daring or daring, robs us from daring to be the people that God has called us or created us to be. We sell ourselves short with apathy. Apathy can also, I think, be the root cause of greed because it's a kind of greed that says, you know, and I'm okay with what I've got and I'm okay with what I've given. Apathy stops us from standing up to injustice. Apathy silences us when we should speak up. Apathy keeps us in our comfort zone. Apathy hinders us from, from forming new friendships and relationships. Ooh. Apathy is a form of selfishness considering it's a focus on what's convenient, what's safe, and what's easy for me alone. And apathy stops us from helping others. So as we consider contentment and, temp and the temptation to exchange it or interchange it for apathy, I believe the words of Solomon then now as we're going to move into um, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I believe that the continuing words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 addresses this contentment versus apathy thing in very practical ways. Three very practical ways. And I point this out. Because even when we understand that contentment is a state of mind that comes from knowing that God is in control and that in Him we have no unmet needs for the time and season that He has us in, guys, the knowledge of this truth can also open doors in our minds that can cause us to drift to the place of, of uh, drift to drift from the place of godly contentment to the state of apathy, and cause us to question the certain seasons and experiences of life, especially when we consider things like suffering or things like the oppression that we see all over the world today on this earth. And you know what, guys? When Solomon was contemplating this, he went to that very same place that I'm taking us to in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And look, he says, Then I returned in verse 1 and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressor, there is no power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. And listen to what he says in verse 3. Yet better than both is he who never existed. He might have a little bit of a problem right now. <laughs> than he who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So in this chapter, Solomon is recording his observations as a wise man, and he was a wise man. And his eyes were opened up to all kinds of things as God gifted him with that wisdom to rule his people. But he saw things for what they really were, and when he looked at them from the position of, of under the sun, meaning meaning without the perspective of eternity, this is what he came to conclude. When his eyes were off of God, he saw these very real things. 
And I think we can all come to this place where we may feel or sympathize and, and relate to what Solomon's speaking about. And so he recorded or he recorded his observation from, offering, from watching in this situation. Several people go through a variety of common experiences that I think we all see and experience in our lives today. And I love chapter 4 because it becomes very real, very applicable because we can talk about these principles, these godly principles of contentment and know what we need to do. But the truth is, is when it comes to everyday life, this is what we struggle with. So how do we take these truths and apply them to this reality so that we, like Paul, can go, you know what, I've learned that. And I love it the Bible does that for us. It's very honest, very real, it's very relatable. And in this first set of observations found in these first three verses, it has to do really with with maybe in, in a, in a um, political sense with the justice system or, or from a ruler's point of view and, and, um, um, and, and, and with events that would most commonly be served maybe in a courtroom. But when speaking about injustice and oppression, we all know that these things are not limited or confined only to the courtroom, right? Injustice and oppression. And when we consider that there is a season... Um, um, or I guess especially in light of the fact that at one time or another we've all experienced some kind of injustice or oppression, right? And when you do that, that's one of these things that can rob you of your contentment, right? When there's been an injustice committed against you. When you go to Taco Bell and you don't get your right order and you've got to go through the drive through again and then come inside, right? And, and we kind of laugh at that a little bit, but how silly are some of the little things in this life that can just, boom, allow, we allow to just rob us of our contentment? That's an injustice, don't you know? I waited in this line. There I was the third person. I paid my money, and I can't believe that person got it wrong. And, and obviously, there's greater injustices than being robbed of a taco from Taco Bell. But <laughs> that's the idea. When it happens to us, it's a different kind of thing on a great scale or a little scale. And when we consider that there is a season for everything, a time or, or for every purpose under heaven, including injustice and oppression, God says there's a time for that. There's a season for that. When we consider that, or as Solomon says, the evil work, that he refers to in verse 3, you know what it does? It can cause us to become weary with, weary with this life. And maybe not because of the taco thing, but other things for sure. Injustices and oppressions where you just go, it would be better if I hadn't been born at all. Right? And maybe you don't go to that extreme right away, but we kind of have that same kind of attitude, and that's what Solomon's speaking here, and that's what it did for him when he determined it would be better to not have been born at all than to suffer oppression. And it's interesting that even back in Solomon's day, I think, even when the nation of Israel had a judicial system based upon God's law at a time when the nation, according to Kings chapter 3, had a wise and just king that Solomon still observed and spoke of injustice. And oppression. In fact, Solomon speaks of seeing innocent people being oppressed by power-hungry officials. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? Saying, the victims wept, Solomon says, but their tears did them no good. Nobody stood with them to comfort them or help them. 
And the oppressors had all of the power and their victims were powerless. And in light of this, Solomon points out two tragedies. The pain and the sorrow of the innocent people's lives and also the lack of concern on the part of those who should have been, been witnessed these things and brought them comfort. They had no comforter in the midst of their injustice or oppression. And these things that Solomon witnessed moved him but not only to the point where he, in verse 2, decided it was better to be dead than to be alive and oppressed. In fact, he said that a person was better off if they had never been born at all, and they would have never had to see the evil work that is done under the sun. However, when we consider this, we need to realize that suffering impression will typically move us, guys, in one of three ways. Whether it's an injustice or an oppression that we have, have, have been afflicted by or when we see it happening to someone else. It's going to move us one or three ways. The first way might be like Solomon who lamented life and we're prob- probably more likely to feel like Solomon did here if I think we're the one that's being oppressed, right? Or if we consider ourselves helpless to help the ones who are being oppressed. Oddly, neither of these was the case with Solomon. He was not the one being oppressed, Right? in this situation. And being the king, he could have done something when he saw these people being treated this way. But apparently he did nothing. So I think it's safe to say that when Solomon saw this, he was a little bit apathetic. Right? I see it. Can't do nothing about it. Oh well. It's better if I'm dead. That's not contentment. That's apathy. On the other hand, If we are the ones witnessing the oppression, we might be moved to selfishly stand at a distance when you see someone else suffering, because this happens all the time. And we take this attitude of better them than me. That's another way we can be moved when we see this. Better them than me attitude and kind of find a false sense of peace in the fact that I'm not the one who's suffering. But the third way that we can be moved and should be moved when we witness injustice and oppression is to be the comforter. That's what the Bible says. That's what we're taught, is to be the comforter. And that comfort can come in many different forms in many different ways. To be the person who comes to the aid of the one who is being oppressed, even if there is nothing in our power to be able to change the situation, then at very least the person who is suffering will have someone to comfort them. And it is the state of of contentment that comes from being strengthened by Jesus that provides for the opportunity to do that. Because I'm here to tell you when someone is suffering, when injustice takes place, when, when, when there's oppression going on in their life, when they're grieving, it can be fearful to go, I'm going to step into their life and try to comfort them because lots of times you go, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. Am I going to bring words that help or words that hurt? But unless you have that inner peace that comes from knowing that God has ordained this time and season even for them, equipped and strengthened by Christ, you're not going to be able to do this work. You'll always go to those two other places that Solomon did. Now in verse 4, if you'll look, and Solomon writes again, and he says, he says again, I saw... That for all of the toil and every skillful work of man that he is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping of, of the wind. Now, 
Just like we've all seen and experienced injustice or oppression in the same manner or in the same light, we all know what it's like to work in this life, to labor in this life, to toil in this life. It's something that's familiar or common to all of us. And at times, work can certainly feel like a very vain thing to do. At times, it can feel like being on that, uh, if you ever had one, like a gerbil and it gets in the cage and on that, that little wheel, you're just like, I've even seen some of those YouTube videos where that poor little gerbil loses traction and the wheel keeps going, right? And all of a sudden, he's like, I mean, seriously, that's work every day, morning, in and out, in and out. And I enjoy work. I enjoy that. But sometimes it can just be a little bit, it feels like a vain thing to do. Like Solomon says, just grasping for the wind, even though God from the very beginning says that he's blessed mankind by giving us a task to do. And for Adam at the very beginning, it was tending the garden, right? Gave him something to do. God says it's a blessing. It's a blessing. But even though it's good for us to work, the motive of our heart, the reason for why we work is just important. And a lot of times when it can feel like you're the gerbil that's on the, the spinning wheel thing is because the motive of our heart is wrong in regards to the reason why we work. We don't see it as a blessing from God. We may see it as a means for provision and forget that God's the provider. And when all of our provisions going to things that we necessarily don't want to spend our money on, you go, it's like grasping for a win. I go to work and then the money comes and then it goes out and I'm like, I don't know just keeps happening. And the motive of my heart is wrong as if somehow I'm the provider and I'm going out to do this rather than seeing that God's given me this blessing of having a task to do and it has nothing to do with my provision because God's my provider. But there's other motives that go along like this. Motive is important. The motive for why we do what God's called us to do is important. And Solomon had concluded that the toil, the hard work of a man who is skillful in what he was doing is vanity, and he says is grasping for wind because he saw that envy can and often is the underlying motive that can drive a person to toil. Can drive a person to go, I'm going to be better than anyone else at what I do. Now, I think excellence is important. I think you should do all things as unto the Lord. That's a good motive. It's not wrong. But he even says in light of this context, he says he can have envy towards his neighbor or his neighbor can have envy towards him. And greed is the underlying motive there. And no one can argue the fact that working hard is a good thing and being skilled in what we do is a good thing. But when we are working hard because we're envious of what our neighbor has is not a good thing. And it's not a good thing primarily because envy and contentment cannot reside in the same heart. And if we're envious of what other people have, we will never enjoy the things that God has provided for us. I'm going to work because i got to get more than what my neighbor has. On the other hand, the, at, the, at, the, at the other end of the spectrum... Solomon writes in verse 5, and he says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. And so there's a contrast here. You have the the man who labors and toils, and then you have the fool, the lazy man, verse 5, who folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. And this, this, this guy, the lazy guy, the one who will not even lift a finger to scratch his own back, that's what, what, what Solomon's saying there. He's so lazy, he won't even scratch his own back. 
someone's calling. And Solomon considered this guy to be a fool because in the end, his laziness brings forth his demise. And the fact of the matter is, is it may be pleasant to be able to sleep in in the morning. Just ask my teenagers. <laughs> and and, and um, it, it, it is. It's pleasant to be able to sleep in, to maybe not have a day where you have to go to work. But you know what's unpleasant about that? It's not unpleasant. It's unpleasant to not have the things that, that, you, that you need to buy. It's not unpleasant. It's very unpleasant when you can't pay your rent or your mortgage, Right? And the Bible makes it clear in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. And Solomon knew, he said, in addition to the man who labored, he also knew that, that um, laziness was also vanity. Laziness was also grasping for the wind. And he had written many Proverbs about laziness in the book of Proverbs. And really, Solomon had no sympathy for, for people who sat all day with folded hands and did nothing. But the envious man who toiled to really, we might say, run in the rat race of life and took no time to enjoy his position or his portion, that guy was just as bad as the lazy man. That's what Solomon said here. And often we don't look at it like that. And as a matter of fact, in our culture, in our society, we kind of, we kind of elevate and ad- admire that guy. But Solomon says it's just as bad. So in light of Solomon, in light of this, Solomon spoke about a third type of person in verse 6. Look, he said, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and the grasping of the wind. He speaks about a third person here. And this guy is one who worked hard enough to fill one hand and still have time for quietness, time for rest in the other hand, right? Time of work and a time of rejoicing, a time of enjoyment with what you have been had or what you've been provided. And the point is, is why have both hands full of profit if that profit costs you your peace of mind and possibly even your health? Better to have gain in one hand and quietness and rest in the other. And now we need to understand that the man who toils is the one who thinks that that money is the one that's going to bring him peace, right? His contentment is in his provision, what he has, but you know what? He has no time to enjoy what he earns, Solomon says. Yet the idle man that has nothing and is doing nothing, he thinks that's going to bring him peace. If I just do nothing, right? Leisure all, all of the time, sitting on the beach. But his lazy lifestyle only destroys him. So there's, there's not peace in that, not contentment in that. However, the last guy who lives the balanced life of work and rest is able to enjoy the work that he or she does and the fruits of their labor. And man, that's a, that is, not, is that not true, a biblical theme throughout from the beginning to the end where the Lord says work on six days and on the seventh day rest? That's the same kind of mentality. And, and it's a trusting in the Lord. And I think this is the sweet spot that we who are seeking contentment should be aiming for this place of not running the rat race, but also not running away from the responsibilities of our life that God's called us to. And the key to this is having the right perspective, Okay. The key to this is having the right perspective. And what's that perspective? Jesus said it in the book of Matthew. It's to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that God will provide. And this is exactly the same if we look back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, which tells us this. Godliness, that's the preface, 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. And when you take godliness out of the picture, contentment that you're searching for leads to this apathetic kind of attitude that Solomon's talking about. You have to have godliness in order to have contentment with great gain. We're almost done. So Solomon continued to tell us about these things he observed while he was still considering the work and the labors of life. He also wrote in verses 7 and 8, look, he says, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun, another vanity. There is, there is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with the riches. It's similar, but it's different. And let's look at this. And in these verses, Solomon spoke about another vanity he saw. And he saw the person who did not have a companion. The loner, right? This man was also working hard, but Solomon concluded that there was no end to his labors. He's never satisfied. Because... He had no relatives, no partner to help him in his business, and he didn't want any help because the idea behind this passage is, is he wanted to keep whatever he had for himself. It's mine. It's all mine. The Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And the bottom line, this guy's motivation was greed. He kept, and, and, and his greed kept him alone. It kept him alone. And it brought no end to his labor since his eye was not satisfied with what he had. And at the end, all of his labors, it was just vanity. In fact, Solomon said he didn't even stop to consider that he was working so hard and sacrificed so much. He never even stopped to consider. And I think that's what we're being called to do this morning, to stop and consider. It was the Greek philosopher Socrates who said this, the unexamined life is not worth living. Boy, how true that is. And these things that Solomon had wrote about should cause us to examine our own lives and to ask questions like this. Who am I working for? Who are you working for? Why am I working? And am I by my work ethic or by my work motive robbing myself and those I love of the enjoyments of this life that come with contentment or better yet, come through contentment? Now, Solomon reflected on this, this loner guy. He spoke a very familiar passage of Scripture in verses 9 through 12. I'm not going to read it because I think you all are familiar with it. But in these verses, he says this, two are better than one. Two are better than one. And then he tells us why it's not a good thing to go through life alone. And if the truth be told, and, 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 and all of us are going, yeah, I know that. But you know what, guys? If the truth to be told, there, every one of us would have to confess that there are times where we've come to the conclusion that it would be better to just be alone. And if you've been married, you, you know. Sometimes you go, it's better to just be alone. If you've been in a church family, sometimes you just go, oh, I'd just be better if I did church up on the hill all by myself. Sometimes we believe that lie. If you've worked for somebody, you might go, I'm just, it must be better if I just left and did my own thing, had no employees, no boss, just to be alone. And it's a lie. And usually we think like this after we've been hurt 
or let down by someone. But in spite of how we sometimes feel, we all know deep down that it's not better to be alone. It's not. There's a Jewish proverb that says this. A friendless man is like a left hand robbed of the right. A friendless man is like the left hand robbed of the right. And in this passage where Solomon says two are better than one, he first applies it to the topic of work and points out that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Practical, right? In other words, two can get more done than when one person is alone. And even when they divide the profits, they still get a better return for their efforts if, than if they had worked all alone. Not only that, but if you have a companion, a work companion, it's much easier to do difficult jobs, mainly because they have each other around to encourage them when things get done, when things get hard. You know, I have two, I have two boys that, that have moved out. They've left me. How dare they? They've left me. They moved out. And, and I, I'm stuck doing a lot of the chores now that I used to have them to help me with. You know, hold this or go get that. And, and it's, it's harder. It's harder than when they were at home. Two are better than one. So two are better one when it comes to labor. And Solomon went on with this principle and applied it to, to other adventures in life in verses 10 and 11, if you'll look there to do so, and illustrated that about in every, av- every avenue of life, two are better than one. And when Solomon concluded this thought, he continued that with the same reasoning and said that if two, are, if, two are, if two are good, then you know what's better than two? Three. And obviously, Solomon, in this sense, when he's concluding this thought, guys, this is really wrapping it all up and taking us back to the words of Paul in both Philippians and in Timothy because what Paul's speaking about is that third person is who? God. So Paul was one in prison. The Philippians were two who provided for a need. And yet there was a third that Paul spoke about in regards to contentment and not needing anything because he knew that through Christ Jesus to strengthen him, he could do all things. Three is better. That third person in regards to all partnerships, that relationship with God, and in doing so, it produces a strong cord which cannot be broken. And I'm going to end with this. I'm going to summarize it with this. So if Debbie and... and, um, uh, Cindy, thank you. Want to come back up, guys? Listen. So, no, so, so, no matter where Solomon went, because he went and he saw some things and he wrote about some things, right? Wherever Solomon went, no matter what aspect of life he studied, he learned an important lesson from the Lord, and here it is. This is what you need to go with. When he looked up, he saw that God was in control of life. and balanced its varied experiences. God's in control, and He brings a balance to the various experiences that we go through. How? Because there's seasons. There's highs and lows. There's hills and valleys. There's a season for this and a season for that. God brings an intentional balance to our lives. He's in control. 
And so when Solomon looked up, he saw that God was in control of life and he balanced its various experiences. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The other thing he saw is he learned is that when he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity. And when he understood, when he looked within, he saw that I've been made for eternity. He can conclude then with that perspective that God made all things beautiful in their time. And that's the only way to process what you're going through, whether it's the position or portion that you've been given, is putting it in the perspective of eternity. If it was all only all about this life, and there were these hills and these valleys and these seasons, you would go, what's the purpose? But it's eternity when we see it. And we go, you know what? It's a time. It's a season. It's a gift from a good God. And God's made it beautiful in our time. So when he looked up, he saw that God was in control of life. When he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity. When Solomon looked ahead, he saw the last enemy, ultimately, which was death. And, 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 and because of that, he could then look around and he could understand that, that, that life is it's, it's difficult. It's complex. It's not easy to explain. But however, in all of that, Nowhere in the book of Ecclesiastes does Solomon tell us to get out of the race. Never once. He never tells us to get out of the race. He never tells us to retreat to some safe and comfortable corner of the world where nothing can bother us because life does not stand still. Life comes at us full speed without warning. And you know what he tells us? He tells us to stand up, to take it, And with God's help, who strengthens us, we can find contentment and make the very most out of the blessing of this life that God has given us to live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that would be true for us too. Whether we look up or look within or look at this world that takes place within it or even look at the final enemy, death, we can see, God, that you have a plan and a purpose for whatever position and portion that you've given us. And I, God, I pray that when we realize, Lord, that you're a good God who's in control of all of these things, when we look around and see the difficulties and the challenges of this life, Lord, that we would find our purpose in each one of those things, our God-ordained purpose in each one of those seasons, so that, Lord, we too might be able to live like Paul who said, I have learned to be content in all of these things with you who strengthens us. God, help us to remember that today and tomorrow as we go on through this whole summer, Lord, bringing glory to your name and looking forward to your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.